Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Greenleft Weekly. It's the people's voice, committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movements. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. And good morning. Welcome to Green Left Radio. You're tuning in to 3CR. And we've got myself, Zane, and shortly we will have uh, Jacob. He has just gone AWOL, running around getting something. And we've also got a special guest here who's in town for the Radical Ideas Conference, which is Nathan Roberts, direct from London, who, who's been uh, involved in the uh, Jeremy Corbyn campaign and all things... Um, exciting and left-wing in, in the UK. So that's going to be pretty, um, yeah, pretty cool. So welcome. Thank you. Yeah, it's good to be here. Um, I think we should begin, of course, by doing what we do each week, and that is acknowledge that 3CR is beaming at you from the Smith Street Studios, uh, which are built on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Uh, we pay our respects to elders past, present and future. And this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. So, yes, it's important just to remember that. Um, what's going on? What's going on in the world at the moment? Uh, I'm jet lagged <laughs> and a bit groggy. I mean, there are there are more important things going on. But, yeah. yeah. When did you get to town? Actually, uh, I got in on Tuesday evening. I mean, I, I've lost all track of time to be honest. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, it's been nice. I've been you know seeing Melbourne, meeting the radicals here. It's been a pleasant experience. Um, what's the uh, what's the time now in? London time. Oh god, yes. I, I dread to even think. Like they're probably having their dinner or something. <laughs> mm. um. Whoops. Okay. Hey. All right. So I'm in the studio now. Um, did we have we done the? Welcome, Jacob. Yep. So have we done the acknowledgement of country and? Yes. yes. All right. Um. So. Um, have we introduced Nathan Roberts yet? We have indeed. We yeah, have great. Indeed. So, yeah, um, for listeners' information, we'll be interviewing him formally um, probably around 12 minutes um, to talk about, you know, British politics, you know, his experiences um, as a campaigner for the Corbyn campaign, and we'll probably maybe just talk broadly about, you know, the general state of the left in um, Britain and also, you know, how Corbyn is, you know, expired you know, mobilising this sort of surge in the youth vote and um, and um, political activity. All right, um, so I think I 
one thing I would like to talk about to start off um, with Zane is um, you might, um, and it's actually probably relevant for people who live in this particular area where this studio is being held in Fitzroy, um, but on uh, a few days ago, the city of Yarra voted to basically change the date um, to you know go away from celebrate basically. Um, Australia Day will no longer be a day of celebration for the city of Yarra. Yeah, yeah, it's good to see. Um, but of course, in response, um, you see the mainstream media basically going on the attack um, with Malcolm Turnbull um, being very disappointed. Oh, um, boo-hoo. And the federal government is attempting or might already have the power, you know, it's quite dictatorial, this government, um, to strip um, the, 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 council, um, the Yarra Council from holding citizenship ceremonies in um, response. And, of course, um, speaking to Stephen Jolly personally um, yesterday, um, who was one of the, um, the socialist councillor who, you know, pushed for this motion um, and he had received the support from the other councillors, um, he, is that the amount of abusive, you know, phone calls um, that the city of Yarra staff are receiving mm. over this um, change, the abusive phone calls that he he is receiving himself personally, um, and of course, a lot of the abuse is actually coming from people who would actually be quite closely affiliated with the far right. Yeah, yeah, they've, uh, they've had Steve Jolly in in their crosshairs previously. Yeah, um, and so you know, if you're pissing off neo-Nazis, fascists, and racists, I think you're doing a good job. Um, and you know, extending to that, if you're pissing off the the Herald Sun, um, when the Herald Sun yesterday was pretty angry about this um, whole you know change, um, then I think you're uh, in terms of you know politics, you're doing a good job. <laughs> yeah. So I like to commend, you know, the city of Yarra for, you know, making that um, decision. Um, and, you know, we're hoping that other councils follow suit because I think if, you know, if other councils in Australia, um, it, it easily puts on the pressure for the federal go- on the federal government and the state government. Um, but, of course, and you know, it's a one step clo- forward for, you know, Indigenous solidarity. Hmm. Yeah, no, it's... Um it's 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 good to see it. I've, it's wow. I'm really talking quite smoothly this morning. Mm. Uh, the Fremantle Council in WA they sort of got the ball rolling for local government on this issue uh, by doing the same thing, not having an Australia Day ceremony or celebration or fireworks or whatever, and instead having this other music festival. Uh, I think it was a couple of weeks after uh, Invasion Day or Australia Day, or, or even on the—I think it might have even been on the 28th of January. But the mm. point was, it wasn't on the 26th, and it was an inclusive event where Aboriginal people and non-Aboriginal people could come together and have a fun day and celebrate, and it not be celebrated on the day that Invasion commenced of this mm. continent. And it was really popular. There was a heap of people there. And uh, I'm pretty sure Dan Sultan played and a, f- a few other Aboriginal artists. And it was huge. They had mm. a massive festival. It was really well attended. And, yeah. yeah, like you say, the more local governments can do this, the more that can help build momentum to get this changed in general, full stop, and not have this big flag-waving mm. party on Invasion Day. So, mm. And um, one of the... Um important things about 
both um, the Fremantle and the City of Yarra cases is, you know, both decisions were actually, you know, made in consultation with um, the local Indigenous communities um, there, you know, because this is something that the Indigenous community wants to them, you know, the 26th is Invasion Day and there's like, you know, we can't white, we, we, we should just, no, we can't whitewash that full stop. You know, there's some, you know, Malcolm Turnbull can, you know, make a bunch of empty statements and how, you know, it's, you know, it's a day that unites us, but, you know, a day, how is it igniting us if it's excluding, um, you know, the original owners of this land? Hmm. And, of course, Bill Shorten has also not um, basically said the same thing. So it's basically bipartisan, you know, policy um, from both the major parties um, to basically support this kind of glorification and nationalism of of Invasion Day. And, of course, you get to see, um, although you're not, well, you're not from the United States, Nathan. But I, somehow, the, the the United States came to mind um, on, you know, Columbus Day is one of the a very similar day. And of course, um, there is a growing movement um, against celebrating, you know, um, that as a public holiday. And so, you know, there are several states that don't even um, celebrate as a public holiday anymore. Yeah, right. Uh, just on the subject two of January twenty six, uh, I. I think if you Google Triple J, Hottest 100, Australia Day, something like that, you should find a link. Um, probably most 3CR listeners would be always listening to 3CR and rarely, if ever, listen to Triple J. Nonetheless, Triple J have got this uh, thing where they're kind of having consultation with listeners about having the Hottest 100 continuing to have it on January 26th or having it on some other date. So I filled out the little survey, took about five minutes. I would encourage people to do the same mm. because, again, the more councils, Triple J, the more organisations can shift away from celebrating this day of invasion, the better. And mm. uh, I think it's it's there's some horrible right-wing things happening all over the ABC at the moment that I've been appalled by the some of the news coverage, even on Triple J, of... Um, like North Korea calling it a rogue state. Is this 2003? Are we? Is this like? Is George W. Bush reading out the news? Um, Venezuela. The the description of the constituent assembly process there, mm. saying that oh, this is like basically going to give the dictator uh, unlimited power. Just really poorly fact checked garbage mm. news. So there's a lot of bad stuff happening at Triple J. I think. Uh, or at the ABC, but um, yeah, this is actually a good thing that's happening where they're talking about January twenty sixth. Yeah, on just a quick kind of discussion um, point, you know, um, probably many. Have you been following the events in Charlottesville? Oh uh, yeah, a little bit. I mean, I've been out of town working, but yep. it's hard not to see yeah. that. So um, interesting development. So Charlottesville. I think many, most listeners, it's been all over the news, um, you know, the tragic, um, you know, Unite the Right rally led into the death of one anti-fascist protester and several injured um, because one of the, the fascists basically ran into, in a car. Mm. Um, but in response, there's been lots of active resistance and solidarity um, because one little bit of background, the Unite the Rally was um, basically organised by the fascists and the right wing in, in the United States to protest 
basically the tearing down, the removal of a Confederate monument. Mm. Um, now, this is a, a new story I actually read this morning, um, but there's been activists who have been tearing down these Confederate statues, mm. um, which is <laughs> great. And uh, before, you know, one thing I actually want to re- um, relay that um, I think is quite important because, you know, before someone says, you know, some people kind of like respond um, with saying, oh, yes, those activists, you know, they're tearing down history. But there's actually um, a very shooing part of his- um, historical fact about those Confederate monuments. And they were actually a lot of them were actually built during the nineteen nineteen sixties during like you know the growing kind of civil rights movement you know and some of the more sovereign racist states they'll basically put there to you know tell intimidate black, intimidate yeah um, and of course they'll even yeah, right. they'll even put there in states that were never Confederate states hmm. um, to begin with um, so yeah the good recent story story is these Confederate statues are getting put down. Um, and in response to the activists who were charged um, with tearing these um, statues down, um, lo- um, lots of people um, all lined up um, to turn themselves in in solidarity, people who had nothing to do with the removal of the statues because <laughs> um, if um, basically the idea is if, if wanting to end white supremacy is a crime, then I am guilty of it too. So mm. that's, that kind of solidarity... Um, is building up, and you know, we uh, from you know all the way from Australia, I'd like to you know, express our full support with that. Um, you know, we're we're also fighting, you know, against a similar kind of rise of fascism or rise of the far right. You know, in the form of reclaim Australia. Of course, they're not as big, and um, United States has probably a much deeper racism problems with racism than, than what we do. Even though and they have guns, yeah, and they also have guns. <laughs> Okay, so Zane, it might be time to play an announcement and we'll probably begin an interview with Nathan. Indeedy do. The Australian Bureau of Statistics will be giving all eligible Australians the opportunity to express their view on whether Australian marriage laws should be changed to allow same-sex couples to marry. Survey forms will be sent to all eligible Australians on the Commonwealth electoral roll. To participate, you must be enrolled. To enrol, check or update your details, visit the AEC website, search AEC or visit an AEC office. The role closes Thursday, August 24. Authorised by the Australian Bureau of Statistics, Canberra. Spoken by Jake Downs. A 3CR supporter. Green Left Radio. All right. Um, so, listeners, we have um, Nathan Roberts in the studio with us today. Um, he is going to be um, he is an activist um, from the UK who um, basically, you know, is you know supporter of Jeremy Corbyn and played a role in um, you know the elect um, to elect Labour in um, South London. Um, he's also a student activist and enrolled with um, kind of a particular organisation. Mm-hmm. I think that like an anti-capitalist student organisation yeah, that does cool. a lot of work around um, cuts. Um, and just one last thing before I let him speak is he will also be speaking um, at the Radical Ideas Conference um, that is happening this weekend. Um, that will be starting at six thirty tonight. Um, at the Electronical Trade Union office um, at 200 Arden Street in North Melbourne. All right, so uh, Nathan, um, we have you in the studio now, and um, I guess the first question I want to ask you is, um, 
what 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 has been kind of like the impact of you know this rise of Jeremy Corbyn and the increased kind of Labor vote mm. um, in since the the June general election, um, and what has the implications it has been for left wing politics? Yeah, so I mean, this is probably the first time in my life that I'm actually slightly optimistic about politics in my own country Hmm. so you know we've gone through uh, 20 years of uh, neoliberalism in the Labour Party um, a completely sort of Tory light uh, programme that leaders like Blair, Brown and Miliband have put forward but what Jeremy Corbyn did was he swung significantly to the left Um, he faced challenges from within his own party and the press uh, and the Conservative Party and it's just his brand of politics of a you know a sort of left democratic socialist politics has really ignited young people who have faced you know seven years of uh, conservative austerity and people have been drawn into the party because they see a a platform and a program that reflects their interests so the labor party has gone from 130,000 members uh, two years ago to 600,000 members now and a lot of those new signups are young people and and the election it had a sort of electric result uh, on British politics. So people, Theresa May called the election because she thought she could get a huge victory. But Jeremy Corbyn and all of the activists in Labour ran an incredible campaign. We deprived them, the Conservatives of their majority and they're in a complete mess now. And the left has been growing. Um, you know, organisations like Momentum, even though I have my criticisms of them, played a an excellent role, I think, in producing social media stuff and doing campaign days. Um, and, you know, 40% of the electorate in Britain voted for a socialist programme. And so how could you not be excited by that? Mm. Um, I guess, you know, um, as a youth yourself, you know, um, do you really, do you feel like there's this sort of increased kind of radicalisation of, you know, youth, you know, starting to mobilise? Because, you know, in Australia, we find that, you know, there's a lot of youth, a lot of youth amongst uh, our generation, you know, have sympathies to left-wing politics, but none of them, you know, are really, none of them are really political. But what I'm sort of seeing in Britain um, from my organisation, just seeing people at music festivals getting excited about a politician, lots mm. of young people. And so what can you sort of comment on that, especially as you're, as a young person yourself? Yeah, so I mean, young elect. Electoral turnout amongst young people dropped off, has been dropping off quite steadily since 1997 uh, when Blair first got elected. And, I mean, you can really put this down to there being no real difference between, uh, you know, Labour moving rightwards during this time and becoming a lot like your own, uh, the ALP here. Um, and, you know, there was an interview done with a, a young person saying, you know, we, we know when we're being sold a lie. Uh, so th- when there's no difference between the two main parties, people don't feel they have a choice. Um, they're not going to turn out to vote. So voter youth turnout between 18 and 24-year-olds went up from 44% in 2015 to around 60% in um, uh, this election just gone, and about 65% of young people voted for the Labour Party. Um, And as I said, it's because they found a programme that represented a clear break from neoliberalism uh, that would provide material improvement in their lives. Um... You know, policies like building half a million uh, social uh, units of social housing, the abolition of tuition fees, which are astronomically high in the UK. Um, How high? Yeah. What's, what's your average like nursing or teaching degree kind of cost? Yeah. So bet- 
pretty much all degrees are about £9,000 a year, um, which is about uh, £13,000 Australian dollars or thereabouts. Mm. Um, but then you also have to get a loan for your living costs. So at the end of my, I'm in the middle of a free undergraduate degree and at the end of it, I'll be 82,000 Australian dollars in debt. Uh, so it's, yeah, it it's pretty heavy. Um, mm. But yeah, as I said, when young people see a program and a person that's going to provide a material improvement in their lives, um, it they're going to vote for it. And What's been particularly encouraging is that the youth mobilisation and youth politicisation has not slowed down since the election. So you probably heard about the Grenfell fire, mm. a disaster here in Australia, which was a horrific uh, thing that happened in a you know huge block of social housing in London that caught fire because it was poorly maintained by the local Conservative Council. And what you had after that was big mobilisations of uh, young people and local residents, and they... I think what was different from previous mobilisations that were like this was that they they recognised it as a class issue. So the people who died in that tower died because the Conservative Council did not care about working class people. And it's that re-articulation of class amongst young people that I think the Corbyn campaign has produced. Mm. I guess my next question I want to ask is... um, I kind of wanted to ask a question about, you know, the relation, the current kind of relationship between this surge and um, Corbyn, um, the rise of Corbyn, you know, the Labor Party, and you know its relationship with the on the ground kind of grassroots kind of social movements. You know, uh, what can you kind of comment on that? You know, because mm. the Labor, from my you know, one of the main things about the Labour Party here is it actually doesn't really have any real relationship with the social movements other than trade unions. And, of course, mm-hmm. the Labour Party is always looking in Australia to co-opt social movements to basically turn them into a potential way of mm. just winning them an election. Um, so what can you comment, you know, with this increased radicalisation, the increasingly left-wing leadership of the Labour Party, how is it supporting... You know, mm-hmm. social movements on the ground, and yeah, well, I mean, one of the sort of unfortunate byproducts of the Labour Party moving radically to the left is that a lot of activists who would have been organisers organisers in social movements have actually uh, moved away from that into party politics. So the general level of social movements has maybe uh, tapered off just a little bit in Britain. But there, you know, so for example, you mentioned the student organisation that I'm in, the National Campaign Against Fees and Cuts. Um, yeah. For a couple of years now, we've been holding demos for the abolition of tuition fees. And since uh, Jeremy Corbyn and his sort of uh, right-hand man, John McDonnell, came to the forefront of the Labour Party, they've been consistent in supporting us. They'll send people down to our demos to speak. Um, uh, But I think, you know, the Labour Party still remains a reformist party and it's sometimes a bit cautious about getting involved in social movements. So what the left has been doing is you know actively encouraging uh, our local MPs to say support strikes so for example in my area there's a strike among cinema workers and we've been left, left activists in the local Labour Party have you know encouraged our local MP to go down raise awareness about it um, so yeah it, it's it's often a case that we do, on the, the grassroots activists have to try and turn the Labour Party outwards the leadership does quite a lot they've you know supported strikes they've supported a uh, campaigns and demonstrations which is a great departure from you know Miliband years where he would condemn one day strikes because he's a, a spineless guy um, hmm. 
Uh, that's actually quite interesting because I think there's, um, you know, when one thing I observed about the June election results is basically we have this, there's a bit of a contradiction here um, with the fact that, you know, the Labor Party in the UK, you know, you still have a lot of Blairites and mm-hmm. right-wing kind of MPs. Um, but the, the contradiction is at the heart of it is their vote share, you know, in the general election in June only increased because of Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and, you know, the broad support for his left-wing program. So basically, you know, even for a lot of MPs, centrist kind of MPs who got elected are actually benefiting from the Corbyn phenomena. Mm-hmm. And so in that sense, that is basically, you know, a way of pushing, you know, some of these, mm-hmm. a lot of Labour MPs to the left because they almost by default have to be, yeah. they would be embarrassing themselves that they didn't at least support, yeah. come in support of a strike or come in support of the thing, the kind of policies that Jeremy Corbyn is putting forward. Yeah. I mean, there is still a sort of core of, a couple of Blairite MPs who will still outwardly criticise Corbyn, but you're absolutely right. Like, um, you know, there are a lot of MPs, Labour MPs, are complete opportunists. So they, when they see which way the wind is blowing, they go with it. Um, and, you know, it, it's pretty funny to see uh, MPs who have spent um, the last two years slacking off Corbyn have their vote share go from forty percent to seventy percent because of him. Uh, uh, huh. I know it's, it's a bit ridiculous, but yeah, I mean, like I said, my local MP is sort of a, a bit of a centrist, but you know, after the election happened, she's been moving left in, at least in her rhetoric, um, and been going down to these strikes and a lot of them has been speaking out about the Grenfell issue and have been, you know, more outwardly supportive of Jeremy Corbyn because they know that, uh, he's the reason they've still got their jobs. Hmm. Um, one thing I kind of want to ask, and this is specifically, um, around the Labour Party because, you know, you have this massive increase in membership. Um, um, and one of the things um, is basically, one of the things we find is, um, especially with the decline in union membership, um, you know, across the Western world, um, and, you know, the age of neoliberalism is, you know, this kind of lack of participation in collective kind of political life. And, you know, with this increasingly left-wing, with the Labour Party increasingly becoming left-wing and this surge in membership, what has been kind of the implications in terms of, like, the democratic life of, say, the Labour Party? Because, you know, Jeremy Corbyn talked about things about has this sort of vision of this democratisation of the Labour Party. And he even spoke of, you know, he even spoke of things like, you know, um, you know how Venezuela has things like you know workers councils like even mentioned that kind of sort of rhetoric mm. around you know dem- democratic control of you know increasing that kind of democratic kind of participation what can you sort of comment on that well in terms of uh, like what your labor party branch is like uh, in terms of democracy it's heavily dependent on where you are mm. so sometimes you have a branch that has been historically left um even all throughout the Blair years and Often you'll find that there's a bit more transparency in the democracy process um, and it's more open to new members and they're more encouraging of new members. But a lot of areas, especially where I live, have been historically dominated by the right, the Blairites, uh, and there's an organisation called Progress, which is sort of a like Blairite cadre, I think is the best way to describe them. Mm. Um, um, but it, it, it's a sort of long struggle and it's... Uh, the left locally in these right-wing branches have been trying to win positions to the branch leadership to open up the process. 
because the right are terrified at the moment that they're going to have their these branches that they've held on for 20 years snatched away from them. Um, <laughs> Which they are. Yeah, just, just, yeah, just wait, just wait. Uh, um, but yeah, it's heavily dependent on where you are. But it is moving in the right direction slowly, even though it's a very long uh, process because a lot of these right-wing branches use, use quite uh, Kafka-esque te- techniques to keep control, including like you know, not telling left-wing members where when meetings are or where they are or stuff like that. Um, mm. um, I guess the next... I wanted to ask you another question, and it's basically to comment a bit on momentum and mm-hmm. their relationship with the Labour Party, um, and especially, you know, my, from my observations, they seem to play a role of mobilising a left-wing base around, you know around Labour Party electorate and mm-hmm. when those leadership contests were, were happening. Yeah. So I think Momentum played a, a pretty good role in the 2017 general election campaign. They produced a lot of like really impressive uh, propaganda videos that were sort of consistent with Labour Party's message of class politics. Um, and according to them, like one third of every everyone in Britain watched them, which, I, you know, take that figure with a pinch of salt because... Uh, I don't know, but it's still pretty impressive. They got tens of millions of views, um, and they've also did a lot of work uh, mobilising uh, people to campaign, especially in areas where there were left uh, candidates for the Labour Party. So I spent a lot of my time in an area called Battersea, um, and they did several really big uh, campaign day uh, <clears throat> events there, where you know two or three hundred people would show up. Um, <clears throat> I think where I'm going to be more critical of momentum is how. They've adopted a very sort of top-down uh, approach to doing politics. So instead of building the sort of grassroots movement, it's very much been, you know, central office dictating where activists go and how activists vote. Um, and so I don't think they've done particularly well in developing the grassroots of their own organisation, which is a bit of a waste, I think, because, you know, if they help coordinate local branches um, taking over their local Labour parties or stuff like that, they think the project of democratising the Labour Party, which is nominally Momentum's project would be a lot more successful. Yeah. So that's what I'm interested in knowing more about. So what is overall Momentum's kind of project? And explain their relationship to the Labour Party. Are they like an independent organisation or or they're closely affiliated with the Labour Party? And what is the the attitude of, you know, Labour Party MPs to Momentum? Yeah, so Momentum's overall project, it was founded soon after Corbyn became leader um, in 2015. And I think their overall project is to support the Jeremy Corbyn leadership and at least nominally uh, democratise the Labour Party and make it it more open. Um, um, But, yeah, they're not an affiliate organisation to the Labour Party. They're sort of like a a group within it. so they operate as so there's lots of different factions inside the Labour Party. You've got like Progress, like I mentioned, the Blairite faction. You've got Open Labour, which is sort of a soft left faction. Um, but yeah, a lot of um, so a lot of sort of hyperbolic comparisons have been drawn between Momentum and Militant, which was a Trotskyist organisation inside the Labour Party during the 70s and 80s, which are you know largely untrue. Momentum is not a Trotskyist organisation. Um, 
but a lot of MPs are quite scared of it because there's been a lot of talk of uh, deselecting, so removing right-wing Labour MPs and replacing them with left-wing ones. Yeah, what's, was there a proposal that there would be a pre-selection ahead of every national election for candidates so that yeah. you wouldn't automatically be pre-selected just because you're already a sitting <clears throat> member? Yeah, so I mean, that, that's actually the rule anyway. Um, so, right. so a lot of this talk of reselection was sort of, um, I don't know, whipped up by the um, whipped up by the right to give the impression that Corbyn and Momentum were like planning a purge, um, mm. which is not particularly true. Although I wish it was. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, um, but oftentimes, the, the, so that there is a reselection process every time uh, an election comes up. But especially in right-wing branches, it's you know heavily policed by the the right-wing activists inside Labour, and they keep it all locked down and quite secret. So it's quite difficult for the left to get a foot in in that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I guess um, my another question I have is, you know, we've been talking about you know the Labour Party, you know, covering, you know, it seems that at this point, you know, because the Labour Party is not, you know, hasn't turned into a far left, you know, revolutionary socialist party quite yet. Um, but it seems like we're you're we're in Britain. You have a much stronger broad left than we do. Um, what? But that brings the next question. What do you think the prospects are for the far left in Britain? You know, um, mm. in light of this, everything that is happening in politics in the UK. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a, a, an opportunity to start talking to people about. Um you know, more revolutionary ideas, especially when you, you know, raise the possibility, you know, raise the possibility of a Corbyn government. I mean, if there was an election tomorrow, chances are Corbyn would become the prime minister, which is an incredibly exciting prospect. But of course, he wouldn't be able to um, put forward all of his uh, programme and policy just like that, because, of course, the institutions of capitalism, the banks, the states, the media would come down on him like a ton of bricks. Mm. And so you have to, you know, have to start talking to people about, you know, social democracy is not going to uh, alone. It's not going to make a path for us to, to socialism. We need to have independent social movements that can fight back against uh, the institutions of capital. And so, I think there's there's space to start talking to people about revolutionary and Marxist ideas, which is very exciting. Mm. I think one of the most interesting things that I think, if you look at Corbyn's history, the fact that Corbyn, you know, in in the past, in especially during the eighties, I think this is when it happened. You know, defended the right for militant to be a mm-hmm. tendency, and actually, you know, campaigned against their expulsions. Is kind of, I think, it's showing that you know, if we, if the more Corbyn solidifies, you know, his control of the of the, you know, his, the left wing leadership becomes increasingly left wing, the more space there is for the far left to participate from within the Labour Party institution. But I think what's the most interesting thing about Corbyn, isn't just a bit of a comment, is he's not, he, he, while, you know, he is presenting a social democratic platform and the Labour Party is still mm. a social um, democratic party, a big kind of distinction between Corbyn and you know, previous kind of um, social democratic parties, even say the Greens in Australia, is he's actually putting forward politics. He's actually putting forward class politics. He's actually yeah. giving this message that, you know, um, because, you know, my, one of the criticisms we have of the Greens, I have with the Greens personally, is that, you know, the Greens in, in Australia, you know, put forward a progressive kind of social democratic platform, but it's all basically 
elect us and we'll mm-hmm. implement it. What Corbyn is saying is not just simply elect Labor, but we have to... But to have these things implemented, we actually have to fight for it. Yeah. We actually have to mobilise and we have to collectively come together. Um, that is, he's putting forward those politics that, you know, of, you know, a fight, a, a kind of fighting left politics. And that's something that's in Australia profoundly lacking. We don't have um, a broad, a, a, part, a social democratic party with, you know, the base of the Labour Party that's actually putting forward mm-hmm. that kind of politics. And it's as kind of like Jeremy Corbyn said, you know, he's, um, he is a new kind of politics, doing mm-hmm. politics differently. And so, yeah, what can you sort of comment on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that. Um, I think Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell are probably to the left of the the way they position themselves. You know, I would say they're almost, maybe not Corbyn, but John McDonnell is sort of a quasi-Marxist um, in many ways. So they understand the importance of class in politics and... You know, it's a similar thing to Bernie Sanders, even though I think Jeremy Corbyn's a lot better than Bernie Sanders. It's, you know, introducing this discourse about <clears throat> the billions versus the billionaires um, and, you know, working people taking back control and highlighting the amount of wealth inequality, which has never been done by the Labour Party, in the, at least in the last 20 years. Um, it's encouraging and it opens up uh, opportunities for us. Yeah. Uh, there's still so much to kind of ask you, but I guess I wanted to ask you if you can comment on, like, what is kind of like the state of the union movement in mm. UK? It's not particularly strong. So we have, a, I think, about 12% union density. So I think that's similar to Australia, give or mm. take a couple of percent. Um, at least where I am, uh, some of the most... Uh, so, so a couple of... Uh, about a year and a half ago, there were some really good strikes by um, uh, junior doctors... Uh, around changes to the health contracts, which would have them working dangerously long, long hours for mm. uh, really bad pay. Um, and so they had some really, really good mobilisations about that. And I think that's sort of it's an ongoing issue. Um, a lot of the union stuff around London has actually been like smaller, more independent unions. Uh, so there have been a lot of um, cleaners in universities in central London who have been demanding to be bought in-house instead of being outsourced and have um, they've been demanding stuff like uh, better pay, uh, holiday pay, sick pay. Um, and actually, in my university, uh, SOAS, the School of Oriental and African Studies, there's been a, I think it's been an 11-year campaign called Justice for Cleaners for them mm. to be brought in-house. And just two weeks ago, it was successful. So uh, yeah, shout out Justice for Cleaners and the International Workers of Great Britain, which organises... Um, uh, cleaning workers and delivery drivers and yeah, pre- yeah. Pre- precarious workers in London. Also, shout out, uh, I mentioned earlier, there's been a uh, cinema strike in these uh, this chain of cinemas called Picture House, which is owned by a big multinational company called Cineworld, where they've been striking for uh, the living wage. And recently, full trade unionists got sacked. So there's been a lot of militancy around that and also a lot of community mobilisation, so picketing outside the cinema doing noise demonstrations to deter people from going in uh doing a boycott uh so shout out to uh the Ritzy and picture house strikers as well yeah wicked and you were saying uh on the way here that uh, the student um activists have <coughs> supported the cleaners mm-hmm. campaigning to be put on as actual um you know employed in-house as mm-hmm. you say by the universities yeah, so the, the students over the eleven year campaign, the students played like a really like central role um, in supporting the workers, putting pressure on management, organising the demonstrations, 
putting on like solidarity fundraising events mm. um yeah and it's it's yeah it's slightly weird that after 11 years it sort of ended so abruptly i think the management sort of knew that their their time was running out they're becoming increasingly unpopular so they did this um uh yeah hmm yeah i think that's uh it's often a um I don't know. It's almost like the holy grail of student activism. Sometimes, if you mm. can, if you can team up, if there's strike action by university staff, be that cleaners or the actual academics or whatever, or with other workers, mm. that that sort of linking between community campaigns and student campaigns can be really absolutely like, mutually beneficial. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good to see. Yeah, good, I guess uh, good to see a victory. Uh, maybe we can kind of end this interview formally with um, maybe the question is now we've talked about all the kind of positive things that happened um, and you kind of alluded to some challenges that you know the left um, has to continue you know with all these positive things that are happening around Corbyn what do you think in terms of the future the the biggest kind of challenges are that the left is facing in Britain well I think winning the election is going to be one I mean even though we did incredibly well and the election just gone um it's you know we still we still didn't win yet the conservatives still have about 50 more seats than us in parliament so it's going to be about depriving them of those seats keeping up the mobilizations um but then after that it's going to be about if if you know god willing <laughs> there's a corbyn government um it's going to be about defending that government um criticizing it from the left when necessary and making the necessary mobilizations to you know, go forward so we can implement the changes and ultimately, you know, strengthen, uh, change the, the balance of class forces uh, in our favour. Hmm. Well, I think the the most <laughs> the most amazing thing that could happen with a the Cor- Corbyn government is it'd be fascinating to basically, you know, I think internationally, mm. you know, the conservative press are probably yeah, go on about how oh yes, you know. I can I can already tell what's going to happen when Corbyn gets elected as a as a government. You're going to have all these sort of bourgeois economists going on about how all of you know Corbyn's you mm-hmm. know economic plans are completely disastrous for economy. Yeah. And or and there's already articles coming in about from you know these liberal elites about how Corbyn shows the perils of too much democracy. Yeah, uh, I mean. Co- I mean, in reality, Corbyn's program is nothing more than like a left Keynesian program. It's not <laughs> anything remotely radical, um, at least in, by the con- uh, standards of some countries in Europe. And mm-hmm. you know, and in fact, he had a one of the good things I think uh, during the election campaign when all of this uh, you know, uh, stuff was going about. You know, Corbyn's economic policy. Corbyn doesn't understand economics. His policies are disastrous. He actually had an open letter signed by hundreds of economists <laughs> uh, saying, uh, actually, you know, this is a uh, it's actually pretty good. This is what we need. Um, mm. Yeah, but I think that all kind of shows. I think you know how far you know politics has moved to light in, in sort of neoliberalism. It's almost become like the default kind of logic, the default kind of mm-hmm. consensus. Um, for everything, um, especially am- amongst a lot of the uh, um, kind of like the liberal media. Um, so, yeah, anyway, just um, for listeners' information, you'll get to hear Nathan Roberts um, talk more about, you know, all this stuff. Um, he was speaking, as I said, he is part of, um, he's here um, to speak on the Radical Ideas Conference organised by Resistance Young Socialist Alliance, which is happening this weekend. Um, he'll be speaking t- tonight at 6.30pm mm-hmm. um, on the panel Gen Y's Fight for a Future. 
Um, and then he'll be speaking on the Saturday morning of the conference tomorrow at 9.30 a.m. on, I think it's, I think the session's titled something about British elections or something. Something, <laughs> something, something like that. <laughs> something about the lessons from the Corbyn campaign or, and so on. Um, so you can probably look at the website www.radicalideasconference.com. Um, and again, the venue is at the Electronical Trade Union Building, which is at 200 Arden Street in North Melbourne. Word. All right. Cheers, Nathan. And All right. Yeah, thank stick you. Stick around. Jump in if you've uh, uh, got something to say about the other stuff we're discussing. Yeah. Name is Selva Cooler Chelvin, and I am fighting for my life. Have you ever wondered what it'd be like to have to flee your own country, spend days or weeks in a leaky boat on dangerous rolling seas, and then arrive in a new country where you are terrorised even more? Well, that's the life confronting millions of people in this world who have no choice but to seek asylum. All these people want is a fair go, but here in Australia, our government, in our name, treats these desperate people with cruelty and inhumanity. Here at 3CR, we aim to give these people a voice, a chance to speak out and let you know that they are just like us, people with hopes and aspirations, people who deserve to be treated as we would expect to be treated if we found ourselves in this position. Refugee Radio is the voice of refugees. 10am every Sunday at 3CR 855 on the AM dial. So say I'm not a worthless human being Cause no one needs a worthless human being My family need a worthwhile human being Alrighty, uh, you are tuned in to 3CR It is a quarter to eight on Friday morning This is Green Left Radio And we've just been talking with Nathan Roberts uh, Who's over here for the Radical Ideas Conference uh, from the UK And he's ruinously jet-lagged And it's really in the mo- early in the morning So um, yeah, it's... Uh, it's been good to have some uh, pretty, pretty far-going political discussion with uh, Nathan, uh, despite his um, quite epic travels um, mm. around the world. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, Let's... he actually had come back from an anti-capitalist camp in Europe. Fortunately, we should have. Maybe we'll have some other time. We'll have a chance to talk to him about that. All right, now, by, um, now, uh, some news from um, the latest Green Left Weekly. I'd like to share. Um, this is in um, Australia. Uh, or South Australia, um, but there's been uh, kind of like I think due to the result, um, due kind of like to the efforts of the anti-poverty network in South Australia, uh, a local council, Port Adelaide Infield, Infield Council, um, basically makes history on New Start and has actually you know basically is the first local government in Australia to publicly advocate for the New Start, New Start allowance to be increased. Um, this motion, um, calling on Port Adelaide in Infeld Council to lobby the federal government to increase New Start, will also you know, be additionally, as part of this motion, be producing a, a report into how councils council can assist local unemployed residents who are struggling. This was sponsored by Councillor Michelle Hogan and seconded by Councillor Peter Jameson and it was passed by 11 votes to 2. Um, you know, I think, you know, this really, this unprecedented 
decision, you know, as it's noted here, came after weeks of sustained lobbying by Anti-Poverty Network SA, residents, welfare recipients and community organisations. And of course, you know, councillors were also inundated with, you know, stories after story of story of how difficult it is for unemployed people to survive um, and, you know, let alone live well on New Start and they listened. Um, now, regarding, you know, anti-poverty network SA spokesperson Paz Horgani said the city of Port Melbourne, Adelaide, Infeld has demonstrated leadership by sticking up for its res- unemployed residents, residents living in poverty, struggling to find work in an unfavourable labour market and facing wave after wave of attacks on their rights and their characters from hostile governments and media outlets. We are glad that they um, they recognise the strong social justice, public health and economic arguments for why New Start needs to be raised. Um, so I think this is a very kind of like positive mood and, you know, we're hoping, you know, this can kind of set up a kind of, you know, this good hope for chain reaction. Chain reaction, similar to, you know, the Australian yeah. Day um, kind of discussion we kind of had before. Yeah, well, that's it. We've got... Um uh, we know that Fremantle Council has uh, got some progressive voices and that they've led on the January 26th. And we know that here that Moreland and Yarra Councils are, um, you know, pretty good with issues like this. So that would be really cool if, if one council could become four and then it could be maybe like the divestment uh, movement and local government and other councils could follow on from that lead. That's it's really positive. Mm. Hi. Um, now, the other thing um, you know, I want to change discussion to is another article on Green Left Weekly. Um, this is written by Lisbeth Latham. Um, she is um, basically, you know, it's regarding the equal marriage campaign. So many listeners probably know there's going to be what well, the government is going ahead with a plebiscite pending a high court challenge at uh, a date I don't know off the top of my head. Um, but basically what's going to be happening is uh, if you haven't enrolled to vote, um, go to the AEC website to make sure you can. Apparently there's um, – I've been hearing some conflict information about people who are 16 or 17 might be able to vote in this postal survey. Um, so through the AEC, you're, we're going to be um, – People's how um, people are going to be send, sent letters, um, and in those letters, it's going to ask whether you support. I think it's basically along the lines of whether you support marriage equality or not. Or in more specific terms, it's going to be basically asking whether you agree to change the Marriage Act and the law as it is. Um, one of the the things is one of the things about um, this plebiscite is it's. A plebiscite, it's not a referendum, so it is non-binding. Um, but I think, as Lisbeth, you know, writes here, you know, there's a lot of reasons to oppose, you know, there's lots of reasons to oppose this is a, just an expensive plebiscite when the government knows there is majority support for equal marriage mm. um, and they could just put the bill and pass it. Mm. Um, but no, they're using, I think this is really just a, a delaying tactic um, but of course, in light of the fact that they're going ahead with this, I think the most important thing we can do as Have activists really big yes is to build a strong yes, build, win the yes vote, mm. but also build a strong campaign. You know that continues to kind of like mobilise people, um, especially and especially you know as Lisbeth kind of you know mentions, you know there's a, there's the challenge 
of you know the fact that the new no campaign is going to go on the homophobic attack. Mm. Um, you know, it's, and we have to we're going we have to defend and stand up against against you know this kind of hate. Um, and there's also I think one of the more more important things is is if we build a strong yes campaign that is willing to mobilise, then if the government attempts to backpedal when the yes vote wins, um, then we can continue to mobilise to put the pressure on the government because I think though the fact that they called this plebiscite is actually a positive in itself because of the fact it shows that the government is struggling to keep, you know, to... Um, to not bow down to the pressure that they're feeling because the equal mm. marriage campaign has been going on for a good 11 years with strong mobilisations um, and they've been building broad support from broader sections of the community one by one and it's been, and it's been growing rapidly. So we need to keep up that, that kind of level of mobilisation. Um, and so that's really why, you know, why Lisbeth is advocating here that, you know, we, we, shouldn't, boycott, we shouldn't boycott, we need to build a strong yes campaign and we need to be mobilising people. Hmm. Yeah, and I, I think that um, other social movements and in particular the, the climate movement has a lot to learn from the equal marriage movement because it has been a targeted campaign. John Howard introduced the um, ban on, on equal marriage and the that campaign has been really focused and has consistently kept mobilising and consistently kept getting people in the streets around that simple focused demand over the last, like you say, 11 years or more. And, uh, yeah, the climate movement doesn't do that. We'll have periodic rallies about, you know, responding to uh, the, the Paris summit or to some international climate summit or there'll be a rally about... Adani or there'll be an action about the banks, all of which is good stuff. But there's not that sort of unified, we need 100% renewable energy or, you know, there's not this unified kind of simple main demand of the climate movement in Australia that we consistently keep pressuring about and keep mobilising about. And so, uh, yeah, I think it's it's really a testament to people power that the that a liberal government is being forced to to have this yeah albeit a delaying tactic but the fact that they're forced into a corner and have to be seen to be doing something mm. is a real testament to people power works it gets results and this campaign is going to win i'm i'm sure yeah it's yeah yep. it's really inspiring i think um um one of the more interesting funny funny things on another note um is andrew bolt actually recently printed article um, saying that in response, basically in response to um, this growing equal marriage campaign, he said, it won't end with gay marriage. And I think, you know, that is kind of like expresses... Damn right, Andrew. (laughs) Yes, it won't end with gay marriage. You know, we were hoping, we we don't want it to end with gay marriage. We want to keep on the fight for, you know, other demands, you know, you know, especially for the queer community. We want, you know, housing for LGBT people. We want to end to homophobic mm. um any homophobic discrimination in the workplace we want to f- we want to win all of those those things mm. um and and getting that victory will help open up that space as andrew bolt brightly points out that that it won't that end with gay marriage up. yeah and that's that's a really 
inspiring and significant thing too is that there'll be this milestone where you win that campaign and then you have a, a strategy kind of discussion and you, you think, okay, where, where to next for for the, the queer movement in Australia? So, mm. yeah. Um, so now the next um, kind of thing I wanted to... Um, actually, this is something that Zane might want to share. You know, you're talking about the climate movement, but, you know, um, what, what can you say about this... Port Adagasca is going to be... Yeah, that's that's fantastic. It's such a good victory. So, um, well, wow. Why why is this so significant? I think that... So the, the two main cheap renewable energy technologies in the world at the moment are wind and solar panels. And mm. there's a lot of, like, cheap increasingly cheap battery storage and if you want to have renewable energy sometimes the sun doesn't shine sometimes the wind doesn't blow so it's really important that you have energy storage uh, and the Port Augusta campaign is all about building a solar thermal tower with molten salt heat storage uh, so that that power can be dispatched as needed to um, fill the gaps when the particularly when all of South Australia's wind farms drop off. And, yeah, this week it was announced by the South Australian government that they are going to proceed and they're going to build this 150-megawatt solar thermal uh, plant at Port Augusta. That's really important because of the remaining workforce from the old coal-fired power stations uh, in Port Augusta, some of them are going to have the skills and knowledge to work in this new power station. They'll, their skills will, in fact, be very useful. It's going to be good for the local economy in Port Augusta. It's going to support the uh, uh, the, the renewable energy um, sector in South Australia because, yeah, you can't just have wind farms. Wind farms are really important, but you've got to back them up with storage. <coughs> and so this is really significant in that regard. And it will be the largest solar thermal plant in the world. So it's going to be a really tangible example. People will be able to look at this thing in South Australia and go, right, we know what those things are, those funny-looking towers with all the mirrors that shine into this thing in the middle and they heat up salt and then that's storage of energy and and it backs up wind farms. And so the lights don't go out. You can have uh, 24-hour 100% renewable energy and we just need to build more of these towers so uh, yeah and again that's a victory for, for people power um, so it's a real it's a real credit I think to uh, to the to the Repower Port Augusta campaign and the uh, shout out to uh, uh, um, the Climate uh, Emergency Action Network South Australia I don't think they're really much of a thing anymore. But back in the day, in like 2009, when that Repower Port Augusta campaign was really kicking off, uh, that group was really um, influential in getting that started. And uh, Beyond Zero Emissions were really helpful in, in drawing up like a technical document. How would this work? How would this solar thermal plant work? Uh, the statistics about employment, what resources are going to go into building the thing. Uh, and so, yeah, and, and then along the way, Australian Youth Climate Coalition, 100% Renewable, Solar Citizens. There's been a whole bunch of other groups. Unions SA have supported that campaign. So, yeah, it's been really 
a people-powered campaign, and it's a super important victory. So I'm very excited. Yeah. Very, very excited. Okay, Solar so, thermal in Australia. Yeah, so it's um, about time to break to, um, for the activist calendar, so we'll play probably a quick announcement. <laughs> Indeedy do. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay. You are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419 8377. All right. It is Green Left Radio here on 3CR. It's Friday morning. It's 8 o'clock. You know what that means. It's activist calendar time. All right, so this weekend, starting today and happening tomorrow and on Sunday, it is the Radical Ideas Conference, sparking the resistance. We live in an era of racism, misogyny, growing wealth inequality, runaway climate change and war. Capitalism is trashing the planet and it's a horrible thing for uh, the, the people, for the working class. It's time to fight back. Uh, come along and network with some activists and uh, have some discussions about uh, left-wing politics in Australia and around the world. So that's happening at the Electrical Trade Union building, ETU building, 200 Arden Street, North Melbourne. And if you just Google Radical Ideas Conference, you will find the website and you can check it out there. So do head along. It's, uh, it's going to be It's going to be cooking. All right, uh, tomorrow, Saturday, August 19, if you did not happen to be at the Radical Ideas Conference, uh, there's a film screening, Balibo, released in 2009, the 10th anniversary of East Timor's independence. This is an extraordinary political thriller about the true events surrounding the execution of five journalists during Indonesian incursions into East Timor in 1975. That is at 1.30pm at Kino, 45 Collins Street in the city. And also tomorrow night, as part of the Radical Ideas Conference, there is Words of Resistance, uh, Poetry and Music Night. Uh, It's an evening of poetry and music with toasts by local artists, activists and international special guests featuring performances by The Same Boat, Ezekiel Ox and Omar Pavez, uh, poetry by Hellchild, Farida Iqbal, Gomit Kaur, Ravi Naveen, Shea Baines, Omar uh, Pavez and Kamala Emanuel. Dinner and drinks available from 6.30. Performances start at 7. That is tomorrow night, 15 bucks or $10 concession. Gold coin donation uh, for Radical Ideas Conference ticket holders. That is at Vic Uni Metro West, 138 Nicholson Street, Footscray. Uh, and that is a fundraiser for Green Life Weekly. So come along and get Cray Cray in the Footscray tomorrow night at uh, Vic Uni Metro West in Nicholson Street. And tomorrow also, 
is Pussy Riot Theatre, Riot Days, Maria Alyokina. Maria Alyokina was one of the jailed Pussy Riot members. Uh, This is, of course, the Russian punk outfit. Um, Pussy Riot Theatre's inaugural production is an adaptation of Alyokina's own forthcoming book, Riot Days, spinning her true story out into a maelstrom of aesthetic defiance in the face of an increasingly authoritarian climate. That is at 7.30 at the Playhouse Arts Centre, 100 St Kilda Road, in the city, and Saturday, August 26th, so next weekend, public meeting, climate change activism. What are the different factions of the cli- of climate change activism, and how do they come together in cohesive action? Anna Crane, the climate deadlock, and Indigenous climate activist Amelia Telford discuss the current state of climate change activism and where it's heading. That's a free event. Uh, No bookings are required. 11.30am, Acme, the Cube, Federation Square in the city. Uh, And I've seen uh, Amelia Telford before. She's from the SEED Indigenous Climate Youth uh, Organisation and she's a really good speaker, so that sounds really cool. Um, Equal Love Rally and Mass Illegal Wedding at the State Library, 328 Swanston Street in the city, organised by Equal Love. So again, that is next Saturday, August 26. And also next Saturday, August 26, protest, fair go for migrants, stop Dutton's uh, citizenship bill, lift the freeze on citizenship applications, stop restricting rights for permanent residents, no to racism, and a permanent underclass of migrants, yes to a multicultural and welcoming Australia. That is at 2pm at Parliament House. So if you want to do the double next Saturday, there's the Equal Love Marriage at 1, and then the um, yeah the refugee protest at 2 at Parliament House. Um, refugee um, Equal Love Rally State Library next Saturday, uh, Refugee Rally, 2pm, Parliament House. Two different venues. All right. Sunday, August 27, uh, March to Save Lives, Rally for Safe Injecting in North Richmond, 10.30am at Jonas St- uh, Street, Richmond. And, uh, yeah, Steve Jolly and some of those um, socialist comrades there have been, um, yeah, really campaigning for... Um, safe facilities for for people with uh, addiction to opiates, which I think is the way to go. Like, you don't want people dying from heroin overdoses, and it's pretty easy to prevent. You just want to have a policy that's not dictated by the herald scum. Uh, okay, public meeting. Keep Faulkner safe. This is also next Sunday, August 27. Uh, community action. Uh, speakers MC Tash Walk, Toxic Free Faulkner, Bronya Lipsky, Environmental Justice Australia lawyer, Roma Morby, a long-time Faulkner resident, Sally, Be- Sally Beatty, a new resident of McBride Street. Moreland Council is considering an application to develop 102 McBride Street, ex-New Farm chemical production site, including Agent Orange components. Uh, dioxin, not nice stuff to have in the soil and you don't want to dig it up and put it into the air and water away. Concerned residents formed Toxic Free Faulkner 
to come together and raise health, safety, environmental and other concerns, council will decide on the application on August 23. Uh, that seems... Okay, so there's a rally on August 27 and apparently council's deciding on August 23. Not sure if that's correct, but maybe it is. Anyway, come along to meet other residents for a progress camp update on the campaign update on environmental health concerns and issues with council and EPA processes. So that is at 1pm Sunday, August 27 at the Faulkner Primary School, 40 Lawn Street, Faulkner. So yeah, if you're in that part of the world, Coburg, Faulkner, that kind of area, um, yeah, get along and check that out because that's pretty, pretty gnarly, like digging up a dioxin-contaminated site. Not cool at all. Uh, all right. There's a few more things here. Should we keep going? Yeah, we'll keep going. Um, unfortunately, just a quick announcement. Our international guest, um, who was due to be coming in, he will probably will be coming in, but he might be quite late, so we might not get time to do a bit of a central interview, or he might even arrive on time. Hopefully, it's he just worst case scenario is he's going to be late, so mm. hopefully we can have a bit of a chat with him um, because yeah, we are quite time limited. So mm-hmm. it was originally scheduled for eight ten, um, and he probably won't arrive until eight fifteen. So yeah, no, no okay. problem. All right. Uh, okay, next uh, next Sunday as well, that's August 27, there is a public meeting, Protest and Persist, How to Change the World. So you're fired up and ready to make a difference. Where do you start? Hear from activists as they outline tangible steps you can take to advance social justice causes that you care about and how to differentiate between volunteer-led organisations that are truly making a difference and ones that are exploiting unpaid labour. That's a free event, 3pm next Sunday the 27th at Acme the Cube, Fed Square City. I don't, what's going on at Fed Square? Fed Square? Um, what do you mean, um, all these events that are happening at Fed Square? Yeah, next weekend. They're all, it's all Melbourne Writers Festival events. Oh, okay, yeah. cool. All these events that you've been reading out that at the Fed Square, they're all part of the Melbourne Writers Festival, yeah, okay. which takes place kind of shortly after the Melbourne International Film Festival. Yeah, nice. All right. Uh, next Sunday as well, public meeting. Angie Thomas, YA and activism. Don't know what what's YA. YA? Hmm. Young, I don't know, something. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, YA and activism. Giving voice to young black Americans and chronicling their experiences of racism. The Hate You Give is the year's most outstanding YA novel. Uh, hear from author Angie Thomas as she argues for writing that can turn the political into the deeply personal as a way to inspire action and speak truth to power. Be inspired by this young, outspoken writer who's ready to hit three truths home, that life fuels art, art mirrors life, and books can change lives. Four o'clock, Deacon Edge, Fed Square, and the city. So I'm sure there's some listeners out there going, why a Duh, I know what that is, mm. but... I do apologise because I don't know what this YA is, yeah. but I'm, yeah. I'm in, I'm in thraxed now. Yeah. I'm so, enthused and I'm interested. All right, so there's um this is that's the um activist calendar or dinner. Um, we'll go probably play a few announcements and then go into a bit of news before our international guest come arrives. Um, or hopefully arrives. I'll probably be sort of on the lookout to make sure I 
get him into the studio as soon as possible because he'll be kind of knocking on the door there. All right. Estás sintonizando 3CR 3CR-Broadcast-Over-100-30-Programs-In-25-Languages-Supporting-Communities-And-Viewpoints-That-You-Just-Don't-Hear-About-Anywhere-Else-Subscribe-To-Your-Award-Winning-Multilingual-Community-
anti-racism. Yeah, and it kind of just shows how, you know, racist, you know, Australia is. Or maybe it also says how low we set the bar for politicians. Like, mm. a, a politician simply acting like a normal person gets praised. Mm. Uh, I mean... You know, in interesting enough, in response to the Charlottesville um, incident is, you know, you have politicians like Mitt Romney who are just basically, you know, saying, who I've actually said, actually given quite a good statement, actually, from Mitt Romney, um, mm. that, you know, in this whole sort of anti-racism versus racist, racist conflict, he's not actually putting forward the both sides of the same. He's saying, no, both, one side is na- are Nazis and the other side are anti-Nazis. There's no... Huh. Both sides. So Mitt Romney's already doing better than Donald Trump, who can't even muster to condemn Nazis. Well, not only that, but he's doing better than the Democrats. Like there's no there's there's no like liberal voice coming out and saying, uh, you know, it's actually legitimate to confront Nazis mm. because they're an absolute cancer on society who mm. need to be confronted quite aggressively yep. from the get go. Yep. Because Especially, liberals are too gutless to say that, and yeah. they're they're like they totally play into that idea of oh, if you if you do anything other than just try and ignore the Nazis and hope they go away, mm. then you're as bad as them. Yes, yeah. especially um, especially in the context that's being demonstrated, it was demonstrated quite clearly at this um, Charlottesville protest that the police aren't there to defend the counter protesters. Hmm. Um, you know, if a, a effective police force could have actually um prevented the stra- the tragedy that happened. Um but no, they're they're letting they're let just like they do in Australia, they're letting Nazis march in the streets. And of course it was very funny when the organizer of the Charlottesville rally got heckled by the audience and the police basically rushed to mm. defend him. <laughs> it's like it was so nearly a lynching <laughs> and so um so it's like the 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 law the law enforcement side. So people, you know, there is actually a need for ordinary people to defend themselves and i think cornell west um you know um said something interesting funny about how you know the anti-far activists you know anti-far though are not actually they don't actually exist as a group you know they just refer to people who are anti-fascist activists and Mm. happen to probably to wear masks probably for the purpose of self-defense um because they don't want to be openly identified by nazis um, I think there's a lot of antifa that don't wear masks. Yeah, exactly. It's just an umbrella term for yeah. people who turn up to protest against. Yeah. Oh, I'm not trying to say that all antifa actors wear masks, but um, when they're singled out in the media, they're usually singling out yeah, the yeah. anti-fascist activists who wear masks. And, of course, there's a reason that hmm. um, had actually played a strong role in actually defending um, the residents, um, the, the, you know, the protesters against violence at the, at the rally. Yeah, yeah. Um, and one of, uh, I think, I think though, one thing now to be going back to Mitt Romney, I think I'll have to be a bit critical of him. I mean, it's good that he's saying those things. Um, and it's good that some Republicans are starting to, you know, condemn, you know, Nazis, but I think, you know, it has to be said that the, the, these Republican politicians, when they've been in office have been completely compliant yeah. And letting the far right oh, yeah. basically take over, and of course they're basically yeah, putting totally forward they're it's basically just... putting forward the same anti-poor, anti-kind of working class policies that is giving the right, giving legitimacy to these um, right wing movements, hmm. um, and uh, and I think also it's also quite opportunistic for their part because they know 
Donald Trump is destroying any kind of respectability of the Republican Party. Um, and so they're quite rushing to defend they want to defend the kind of respectable image of the Republican Party because it's been gone so far gone um, um, as a result of Donald Trump um, that there's almost no turning back. Like hmm. the the Republican Party could almost destroy itself um, as a result of Donald Trump, which is interesting. But it's of course what we, of course the main issue is um, there's no left wing alternative to to the Republicans because we. What the best we have is the Democrats. Um, so that actually gives me actually segue into another story from Green Left Weekly. Well, hang on, just before we do, yep. um, just regarding this whole Charlottesville and discussion and, and you know people looking at Antifa, etc. Um, do you hear about Mike Godwin? No, I don't think so. I have. So Mike Godwin um, coined this idea of Godwin's Law. Mm. I don't know when that was. I think that was in the late 90s, early 2000s. He basically said... Uh, on the internet, any time you have a debate on any subject, inevitably one person will label the other one um, as being like a fascist or a Nazi or Hitler or something. It doesn't matter what you're debating. These debates just tend to escalate and then there's some inappropriate mm. comparison to Nazis. Mike Godwin came out this week and said, um, Godwin's law does not apply here. Like These people actually are Nazis yes. and they're fair game. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, it's completely appropriate to call these people to their faces Nazis and fascists. Mm. And a lot of the fascists have who have been at this Unite the Right rally are actually getting quite upset because they're getting publicly shamed and mm, potentially they could get um, their employment terminated, um, and of course, um, some of these, um, some of these, um, one of the these unite the right activists. I don't, I don't think we should give them any legitimacy of calling them activists, but so protesters or fascists. So let's call them fascists. Okay, one of the fascists um, has reportedly been disowned by his father and his family, actually, and his family says that he is not welcome at any of their. He's not welcoming the family until he renounces his white supremacist views. Hmm. Um, so, now going into the story, um, unfortunately, it doesn't look like our guest is going to be arriving, or he might arrive at like really the last minute, which is unfortunate. Um, we might he'll be. Yeah, maybe in the- we can just comment a bit on yeah. on the situation in the Philippines at yeah, the moment. So basically, um, I'm not really that qualified to comment on the, but basically. Duterte's kind of war on kind of drugs has kind of escalated um, to the point where he is actually now targeting human rights activists. And Alice Carlos is one of those activists who might not be able to visit the country. Um, and he's actually given um, kind of report to the human rights, a kind of some kind of human rights commission or UN human rights institution in um, the United States and has mm. given testimony about Duterte's kind of war, um, human rights abuses. Um, and you can actually read um, the details of that testimony um, at the links, International Journal of Socialist Renewal, um, which, and if you just search um, LSA Carlos, um, it's, well, it's actually one of the headline articles on links. So, that could um, that's probably one way of um, you know finding out more. Now, I actually just wanted to. I'll, he has actually, I think, just arrived. As far as I know, uh, I think that might be someone from BZD. We've got yeah. a little like security camera in the yeah. studio here, so we're just keeping an eye out. Yep. Um, yeah, but yeah, I think it's um, the the whole thing in the Philippines. All right, so 
putting uh, putting aside for a moment the fact that drug addiction and the entire drug industry is a symptom of of poverty and not being socially connected like people take drugs as an escape from a painful uh existence right mm. putting that aside for a minute uh the the issue in the philippines is how do you determine who's a drug dealer? Mm. Rodrigo Duterte has implemented this policy where police are just given blanket um, blanket permission to engage in extrajudicial killings. So any sort of political opposition, you, you could literally in the Philippines at the moment just go and kill anyone you want if you're a police officer mm. and just say they were a drug dealer mm. and that is it. There will be no examination. There will be no investigation You've just killed whoever you want for whatever reason, and there is no recourse. Mm. And that's the real problem mm. uh, at, at the moment. And the fact that Rodrigo Duterte has just appeared in the last couple of days and said, you know, I'm going to shoot the, the these human rights voices, that exposes what's going on here. Mm. Is under the cover of a war on drugs, the president has just given the police and, and security forces you know, blanket permission to just go and kill whoever they want. And it's really scary stuff, especially with the with the history, the political history in the Philippines of um, the Marcos regime. Mm. Uh, uh, he has arrived, but it looks like it's all right, might we'll, be... We'll get like two minutes super brief comment. Yeah, he can just introduce himself into the studio. <laughs> um, but... Um, fortunately, I think he's actually going to be in the country for quite a bit. So next Friday, we can probably interview him. Um, but it will hope, um, but it'll have to be um, via phone. But he's in the studio now, so we can just he just introduce himself. All right. Uh, welcome. Thank you so much. It's good to be here. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> so we've we've only got about um, two to three minutes. Two minutes. So if you can just give us like the super condensed wrap about what's happening in the Philippines at the moment. Yes. Well, um, um, unfortunately, um, uh, there's a um, um, multifold human rights crisis uh, in the Philippines. As if I may borrow the words of the UN Special Rapporteur on Extrajudicial Killings. Hmm. Um, and um, it's really um, a uh, uh, our violent president um, Rodrigo Duterte putting in place a uh, permission structure for mass murder, no, um, encouraging, um, um, ordering the police to do whatever it takes, um, promising them protection from litigation, um, asking the armed sections of. Um, uh, the Philippine left to actually participate um, in extrajudicial killings as mm. well as um, ordinary citizens, no? And, um, yeah, it's, it created these conditions of whereby um, um, he has established um, institutionalized uh, impunity. Um, and, um, yeah, essentially um, leading to, um, sadly, and... Um, um yeah unfortunately to the deaths of thousands of the most impoverished uh individuals in Philippine society. Mm. Yeah. Well, um just uh, you can hear more from 
from our LSA um, at the Radical Ideas Conference. So just <laughs> um, just yeah, like Nathan so Roberts, he'll be speaking on Saturday night um, of the well, not Saturday night. He'll be speaking on the Saturday of the Radical Ideas Conference at two p.m. on resisting um, Duterte's authoritarianism. I think that's what the session is called. Um, and um, once again, it is going to be located at two hundred Arden Street um, at um, the Electronical Trade Union building at in North Melbourne, which you can access by the Route 57, Route 59, or take a tram to the North Melbourne station. Uh, so that's, yeah, you'll be able to yeah. hear more from him. And Elisa Carlos from, yeah. uh, from the Philippines. Yes, yes. Thank, and you so thank you very much. Hopefully yes. we'll, inter- um, since you're going to be in the country fit, we'll hopefully maybe be able to arrange an interview maybe next Friday. Um, not sure if you'll be in Melbourne, but if you're in Australia, we can, you know, yeah, it'd be good, good to talk more when we've got more time. That would be very much appreciated. I mean, it's important that uh, the world um, uh, learns about what is happening in the Philippines. International solidarity at this point in time is very important. Uh, Philippine institutions, um, the two other branches of government have become co-opted. No, as uh, this uh, president has super majorities in both uh, legislative chambers as well as a subservient Supreme Court. So it's left up to really civil society, the social movement actually to to provide the critical opposition. And mm. uh, we need all the support we can get from uh, from uh, institutions and uh, and groups abroad. You know? to mm. counter um, um, the, uh, Duterte's road toward authoritarianism. Mm. Yes. All right. Well, um, yeah, we'll uh, talk to you again uh, soon. Hello, Sir Carlos. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. And thanks also to Nathan Roberts, uh, visiting from London, who was in this morning. See you at a Radical Ideas Conference. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio. Brought to you by the Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1800 634 206. For new subscribers, it is only $10 for the first six issues. Repeats of the show and interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the 3CR website. Thank you for listening. You are tuned into 3CR Community Radio, 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au.